If you want to begin to understand the book of Romans, stay with us this morning and you will hear a review of the first four and a half chapters of that book before we launch into a consideration of the last half of chapter five. Welcome everyone, I'm Joel Van Hoogen and this is the Bread of Life. This radio ministry is sponsored by Church Partnership Evangelism and its local missions fellowship in Boise, Idaho, the Bread of Life Church. It's important that you ask the question, where can you give your ministry support in a place that is most strategic? Remember that Jesus' great commission to the church was to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples. There are many great works of the church, but the work of making disciples and planting churches is central to the strategic expression of her calling. For this reason, I want to encourage you to go to our ministry website, traincpe.org, and consider giving to Church Partnership Evangelism. We are at work taking the gospel in direct and personal evangelism throughout the world. On a daily basis, we're working with pastors in Asia, Africa, and South America, equipping them and directing them in engagements of the gospel with lost people. God is blessing and the church is growing in these places. You can learn more, again, by going to traincpe.org or breadoflifeboise.org. And now to God's Word. Romans 5, verses 12-21 through 21 comes in a line of Paul's presentation of the gospel. In this passage, Paul will begin to answer the question, How can one man die for all men? But before answering that question, follow along as Paul lays out the need of the gospel the need of salvation in the first four and a half chapters of his letter to the Romans. I've taught at a seminary level before, and one of the assignments I've given to students is to take the book of Romans, gather together in a group of four, let's say, and do a speed read of it over a period of like an hour where they just have to read through it. And basically, they should know it by now. These are seminary students. They're late in their years. If they don't know Romans, there's a problem. That would be a passage in a book that they would have been reading quite a bit as they're working on their master's degree. But to read through it, and then they were to get together as a group, and they were to construct a presentation of the gospel using the outline of the book of Romans. Actually, even today, as I was driving into the church... I thought how actually wonderful and clear Paul is making the gospel known. He starts out at the very beginning saying that it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And then he says, well, the reason you need salvation is because the righteous, just wrath of God is being revealed against all manner of ungodliness of unrighteous men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then he goes to a systematic indictment of all men of every stripe. There are men of other religions who bow before their idols and moral men and then those religious men who come and bow before the God of the Bible and name him as their God and build their religion around them. In and of themselves, he indicts all of them. He comes to chapter 3. He indicts them all of being in such a condition, in such a state, that they're guilty before God and they have no answer in themselves. And then he begins to present how it is that the answer has been provided through the work that Jesus Christ has endured for them in their behalf, securing a pathway and a way for them to be made just before God. He begins to argue in chapter 4 that it is impossible for a man to add to merely only faith in what Christ has accomplished as his means of salvation by demonstrating that the very one who is the father of the faith, Abraham, learned this law, this principle of faith, before God ever pronounced or gave the law to anyone. And that he himself is a demonstration that the individual is made just before God, is made just before God by faith alone in God's provision. 
And now he comes to chapter 5, and this is where we find ourselves in chapter 5. In verses 1 through 11, he basically presents to us that we are justified by grace alone in Christ alone. And when this takes place, we enter into an experience. We experience peace with God. We experience the access into the grace and benefits of our salvation being poured out upon us. As a result of that, we have a foretaste of heaven and we begin to boast or exalt in the glory that's yet to be revealed, the glory that God is going to bring upon us one day. And as a result of this, we even then boast in the tribulations and difficulties we experience because we find in the midst of those challenges and those tribulations and those persecutions that the faith we had in the Lord Jesus was real and genuine. It was not just a momentary thing in which we were just trying to appeal to some sentimental notion or we are trying to appease some person who came to us with some kind of evangelistic zeal or because we were superstitious or we are just going along with our culture or whatever it was or we were just for a moment trying to rid ourselves of some problem or some guilt but that we'd actually truly by faith anchored ourselves into Christ and His salvation and in the midst of tribulation, a trial, what we discover is that we love Him. That He's poured love into our hearts. We love Him and we respond to the love that He had for us in saving us. And then Paul pivots to demonstrate the love that God had in saving us. He demonstrates that when God saved us, He didn't merely take care of the matter of our sins so that we could be justly forgiven and brought into a just and righteous relationship with Him. In other words, God did not simply express His justice in providing salvation for us. But God, above everything else, demonstrated His love for us and gave His life for us. And so Paul talks about the fact that God demonstrates His love for us and that He saved us when we were enemies with Him. And He saved us when we were sinners, transgressors, who rebelled against His rule and His law. And that's what sin is. It's just rebelling and transgressing against the rule and command of God. And God brought us salvation when He says we were ungodly. And the idea of ungodly means not like God. We were made in God's image, but because we had sinned and rebelled against Him, we'd actually become foes of God. We'd turned out where we were antagonistic towards God and God's own justice and righteousness and wrath brought us under his own divine antagonism, and we were defaced in the image that he had made us in. We were an ungodly, this is the condition of man apart from God's saving work. He is a wreck. He is a ruin of what God intended him to be. He's a moral wreck, vacated image of God, a, a collapsed relic of what God had made him to be, ungodly. And yet, the Bible says God demonstrates His love in that although we were enemies and although we were transgressors and sinners and although we were these ruined wrecks, God didn't approach us and God didn't engage us and encounter us as enemies or as sinners or as ruined wrecks. But it says God came to us while we were helpless, while we were without strength. God's love and God's mercy was, this is how I'm going to engage these individuals. Although they defy me, and they stand as foes against me. And although they have fallen and collapsed in complete ruin, I'll just approach them as helpless and without strength. I'll meet them in their, that condition and that merciful condition. There is no other way that God could have approached us that was true and factual and yet provided a way for mercy and love than to approach us as just helpless wrecks. And so He did. And in this state He came to us and he gave his son 
to die for us. Now, in verses 6 through 11 of Romans chapter 5, the death of Jesus Christ as the vehicle for our justification and reconciliation is mentioned four times. In other words, as God speaks about this wonderful prevailing love that God had for us, He bringing salvation and reconciliation to us so that we could be right with God and have a relationship with God. And in that relationship, we could not only now, not only have peace with God, access and outpour grace, rejoice in the hope that's yet to come, the glory that's yet to come, even rejoice in the midst of tribulation. But Paul will say also, we finally come to the point where knowing how much God loves us, we just rejoice in God. We just take joy in knowing Him and having a relationship with Him and having fellowship with Him. And this is made possible and this experience of the outpoured love of God where He loves us and we love Him and we enjoy that is because, and he says it four times, he speaks of because Christ has secured this through His death for us. And so you'll read in due time, in verse 6, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. There's the first mention. And then God demonstrates His own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then you read, now having been justified by His blood, which is a reference to His sacrificial death for us. And finally, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Do you see that? Four times he speaks of the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Here Paul is proclaiming that our salvation is rooted, it is secured in the death of one individual in the place of all individuals. That's what he's saying. So now he moves to verses 12 through 21. And it seems at this point in time that what Paul is doing is he's answering a question that comes to his mind and might and should come to your mind as well. And that is, how can the death of one person provide salvation and justification and reconciliation and regeneration for many or all people? How can the death of one person provide all of that for all of us? How can one die for all? And so Paul takes up the responsibility to answer that question. Another way of looking at it is at the end of verse 11 in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, where Paul is kind of building this argument of the experience we enter into by being justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And now, having been reconciled to God through the outpoured love of God, through the death of Jesus Christ, Paul sums it all up by saying and explaining that our salvation, our reconciliation comes to us, look at the end of verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now Paul is going to answer this question, well, how is that possible? How is it possible that we might be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ? And he's going to explain that to us. And then at the very end of this passage, again, at the very end of Romans chapter 5, the last words again here are, Paul is basically going to say, that through Jesus Christ, our state of salvation, our eternal life comes to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that grammatical construction is there at the end of verse 11, and then it's at the very end of this chapter, because Paul is demonstrating these things are connected. What he is going to say is connected to what he's just said. What he's going to say is to demonstrate and prove how the death of Christ can accomplish your salvation of mine. And the reason Paul is doing this is because he wants the individuals he's writing to to be completely confident of the salvation that Jesus Christ provides for them. Be assured that they are forgiven and right with God and they're in a right standing and they've gained an everlasting salvation. Another way to put it is this way. 
when I'm sharing the gospel with individuals overseas or even here. And in many cases, I do travel to places where there is somewhat of a historical background of Christian influence in those cultures. And oftentimes I've taken to meet individuals, even in countries that are what we call Muslim countries or Buddhist countries or Hindu countries. I'm taken to families that have moved outside of that culture, so they've come into the Christian culture, maybe for generations, but they're what the people in the churches call skin Christians. They're just cultural Christians, just on the outside. And they're easy to find in those cultures. It's very easy to move from a heavily laden Muslim culture or Buddhist culture or Hindu culture, which is basically the purpose of those religions, to provide kind of a a cultural cohesion. And once you have a family member or your family turns in its history to follow Christ, the temptation is to just become a cultural Christian, just to mimic the culture around you by developing a Christian culture. And so it doesn't take long for a second or third generation to come along. They claim to be Christian. They become a part of just a gathering of people that identify themselves as Christian, but they have no deep experience of Christ himself in their life. Now, if that happens there, you know what happens here as well. It happens in our world as well. While we wrote the book, we have back there, Saving Evangelicals. It's possible to be in an evangelical church to grow up in Thanks for joining us today. Before we sign off, I want to remind you of a ministry website that we've developed called TestYourTestimony.com. Our concern is that there are many in our churches that do not have a true born-again relationship with the Lord Jesus and so face the prospect of His rejection and judgment on the last day. Our pity for these has made us develop a site where a person can apply the command of 2 Corinthians 13.5 to test themselves and see whether they are in the faith. Please go to that site and prayerfully consider someone else that you can share it with. For now, we look forward to being with you again at the Bread of Life. Till then, may God bless you.